I think the first step is actually going back, where can we do this research? Who are the people who are trained to do this research? And so far, if you think about a Midwest requirements, uh, it's only a diverse wealth in our lab that has the capability of doing a Midwest requirements in dogs and cats, specifically. Also, I think is as we're doing training more people to do the same thing is the first step, having trained personnel and getting these people to academia or to the industry and getting industry that support this kind of research. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast. I'm one of our hosts, Dr. Julia Pizzali. I am currently an assistant professor at Iowa State University, and today I have a pleasure of having with me Dr. Emma K. Choveler. The Pet Food Science Podcast is a platform where we talk to scientists and veterinarians that contribute to research in order to advance the pet food, nutrition, and veterinary health industries. We hope to keep you up to date with the latest research trends and hot topics of the industry in a light and interesting way, while also saving our time. Hi, Kate. Very nice to have you here today. You too, Julia, and uh, I'm really happy to join the team. Um, I love. We always love talking data. You and I have had a had had four four and a half years uh, to just talk about your data, um, and we already know each other quite well and know each other's topics quite well. So I'm uh, really excited uh, to be able to host this with you because you were formerly in my lab, and and now you've gone out into the world, and so. I'm really excited about that. So today, Julie and I are going to talk about the need to understand the amino acid and protein uh, composition of ingredients and final products, the digestibility and possibly bioavailability of amino acids and ingredients and final products, and what we know about amino acid requirements of the species of interest and whether we know enough to define what we call reference proteins. Um, we're going to talk about these things because these are important concepts for every company to consider um, when they're setting nutrient targets and food philosophies for for whatever their final product is that they're going to deal uh, that they're going to sell as either a dog or cat food. Um, so why don't we, um, I, I thought that maybe we could start by encompassing a little bit about what we're going to talk about. So uh, first, we're going to talk about considerations in the analyses of protein amino acids. Second, we're going to talk about methods to look at the bioavailability of amino acids. And third, we're going to talk about the amino acid um, requirements in dogs and cats and whether we know enough to define um, these these reference uh, patterns for dogs and cats at different life stages um, and in different physiological stages. Um, but then also, do we know enough to guide uh, regulatory uh, guidance? Because, of course, especially in the United States and Europe, there are pretty strict guidelines for nutrient composition. So um, let's get the conversation started, uh, Julia. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, 
how do we, do we analyze protein and amino acids? Because I think the first step when we are formulating, we get those values. So we need to make sure those are accurate and precise as well. And for nitrogen, it's pretty much it's simple and straightforward. We first started with the JDOM method as the official one, but over the year, it transitioned to the nitrogen analyzer, which is much more simpler and rapid as well and safer. Uh, the JDOM method was the uh, old method, and it's still considered the gold standard by some people. Uh, we're basically going to boil that sample in a sulfuric acid at high temperatures, so that's why it's considered dangerous. And then it does some titration to measure that ammonia and then measure the nitrogen content of the sample. In the nitrogen analyzer, we're going to basically combust uh, that sample, so burn in a high temperatures and measure the nitrogen. And we're assuming that every protein has 16% nitrogen and then multiplying uh, the nitrogen content uh, to get the protein off that food, which has some limitations. We know that not all protein has 16% nitrogen. And there's a lot of um, kind of, you're going to measure some nitrogen that is not coming from protein as well. But even though we have those limitations, the crude protein analysis that we have, and they are kind of uh, have low variability and are straightforward. So when we get those analysis from the laboratory, we kind of, we kind of are confident on our results. However, when you talk about amino acids, it's another conversation. Um, it's important not only to know the protein, right, but also how much of each amino acid, because animals, they require amino acids, not protein per se. So when you do amino acid analysis, actually have three different analyses or digestions. Uh, in those food ingredients or pet foods, the amino acids are bound to protein. So we need to hydrolyze those amino acids to, to know how much content of each amino acid have those proteins. And we have three analyses. The first one is a regular hydrolysis. The second one is oxidized hydrolysis. And the third one, the alkaline. So the regular one, we're going to get most of the amino acids, uh, with exception of methionine, cysteine, uh, tryptophan, uh, I think, vitamin, and aspartame. And then with the oxidized hydrolysis is where we get methionine and cysteine and the alkaline tryptophan. And the variability in those analyses are very high. We try to keep it below 10%, but mostly for tryptophan is very high. So we always must send those samples in duplicates. Uh, and if we have an extra budget, I would recommend even more samples. For research purpose, uh, when I did my PhD of Gate, we did SWAN analysis, even in quadruplicates, just to make sure we have uh, precise estimates or accurate estimates of those amino acids. And also, I think it's important to highlight, Kate, for the when you analyze methionine and cysteine, we analyze the oxidized version of them. Uh, so when you get, so when you when you digest them, you're gonna get cystic acid and oxidized methionine. And so basically, then we're gonna convert those values to methionine and tetracycline. But this you should have in mind that's not gonna be the available methionine or available cysteine. So maybe if you have some processing conditions that are going to oxidize our methionine, for example, you're going to basically put in the same pool of photomethionine. Uh, but I think the most important message here is that uh, analysis of amino acids, they are very uh, variable. Uh, those official procedures from OAC, and they need probably some update. And I don't know if I have any thoughts on that, Kate. Yeah, it, I, I think too. It really begs the question when you when you're giving advice to to pet food companies as well. You have to to think about what your recommendations are for analytical uh, labs that they can approach, and it's really important to um, 
uh, use accredited labs, uh, especially for in-product, in-market um, commercial products. But what it also means is that uh, every company needs to understand what the amino acid content of their ingredients are because we use those amino acid contents to then formulate the food where we put a combination of ingredients together and, and we predict, we try to predict what's going to happen um, uh, in the final product. And so when you're thinking about that too, all the companies have an obligation to do amino acid uh, analysis on the final product, but it it you know you you must be doing your amino acid analysis at the same lab because the other component of this is that there's a lot of variability among labs. Um, so we're talking about variability when it's the same person that's prepping the samples. Um, you're running it on the same on the same uh, amino acid analyzer. Um, consistently, you can still see 10% variation. Now you add someone else running it or a slightly different uh, method that you're using to analyze the amino acids and you've just added even more variability. So that consistency of going to the same lab, um, a lab that really understands the level of precision of their analytical technique. And of course, precision means um, that you want it, it very good precision means that between every run that you have, that you have a really good consistency versus accuracy where what you're measuring is what you know to be true. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of advancements is in this 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 next set of analytical techniques uh, that we see coming to the food industry in particular. You were talking about these um these uh, hydrolysis uh, that we have to do to measure amino acids right now. But if we move to non-destructive methods in the future, I think that'll really um, add to our understanding of the nutrient composition as it it surrounds nitrogenous compounds and foods. Um, So analyticals continue to be a, a, a bit of a problem. But that also means that when we think about transitioning it into the next part of um, our discussion about protein and amino acids is um, we need to know what's in the food or the ingredient, um, but we also need to know how much of that food the animal can digest and then the amount of the amino acids and the nitrogenous compounds that the animal can absorb um, and then after absorption, those amino acids have to get to the site of protein synthesis uh, to be able to support protein synthesis. So let's talk a little bit about um, those methodologies as well. And and um, uh, maybe we'll talk about digestibility, which the industry tends to do quite a bit. And so... I think first and foremost to point out about protein and amino acids is that the majority of protein and amino acids, the vast majority, is digested and absorbed prior to the end of the small intestine and before the large intestine and, and all the bacteria um, that resides in the small intestine or in the large intestine and how it kind of transforms amino acids. So we to define protein quality or to define amino acid digestibility in particular, 
we have to use ileal cannulated um, animals uh, if we're going to do in vivo studies. And so I think it's crucially important to point out to people that total tract amino acid digestibility is useless. And um, uh, Dr. George Fahey's lab showed this years ago. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was uh, some data from um, Sean Murray where he compared ileal uh, cannulated dogs and they did ileal, um, uh, di- ileal digestibility of the amino acids versus total tract. And you can detect differences of digestibility at the small intestine. And when you look at total tract, those are masked. So that just emphasizes even more the importance of looking at that ileal digestibility. Now, obviously, um, we're not cannulating, putting cannulas in uh, the small intestine of dogs or cats. Um, so what can what can we do? Well, we can use model animals. So we can use the ileal digest um, uh, the ileal digestibility done in in the swine model, and that's currently being used for human protein quality. Um, uh, but we can also use the secactomized rooster, which has also been validated against dog and cat for amino acid digestibility, and is available um, to be used. Uh, and if you're interested, you can you can contact uh, the pet the the pet nutrition group at the University of Illinois. So those are the two model animals you can use. And then what we're really seeing right now is a lot of work being done on in vitro methods um, to do amino acid digestibility uh, in, in particular. And so we're going to start to see, uh, we a lot of us use static methods for digest- uh, digestibility, um, there's also dynamic uh, methods for amino acid digestibility, um, and those those are getting a lot of support um, for further development across all species, so we can avoid using using live animals. So that's all digestibility as a measure of protein and amino acid availability, and generally digestibility is the largest component of the bioavailability of the amino acid. But if you have um, uh, amino acid transformations during processing, you might miss them on a digestibility and you'll have to pick them up on a bioavailability um, estimate. So I figured that this this was a good opportunity um, for you to describe uh, uh, some of the, or at least one technique, the indicator amino acid oxidation technique, to measure amino acid bioavailability, but also to describe how you can damage amino acids during processing and and what the industry really needs to understand about thinking about that. So do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Just to add some stuff on the digestibility, I think it's going to be hard for an industry to move away from that, and there are many reasons. It's kind of only one university, Illinois, did do this sectomized research so far. So... There are limitations on where can you run those analysis. And the uh, cannulated pig as well is not is invasive, it's not simple, not many groups they do as well. So how can we uh, understand the limitations about apparent or objective adjustability? I think the awareness is the first step. Okay, we can for sure not measure amino acid adjustability using that technique. Uh, we get protein, so are we under overestimating? And uh, what can we do with that number? I think creating awareness is the first step. And 
the understanding as well that is those methodologies are the they're the good models, but they're not easy as well. So and they're probably more much more expensive than running a parental track. So how can we also kind of help the industry? How can we as academics kind of spread those techniques and help uh, to get more data as well? So I think it's they're for sure the great models, but it's kind of it's going to be more complicated to move away completely for parental track to to those models. And they are validated against the dog, right? But they can't. We assume they are, but they are not. And it's going to be very hard to validate because you're not going to be able to cannulate that cat. So it's another complication. So maybe you need to move with ferrets. And again, ferrets are very aggressive animals. So it's not easy also to keep those animals are land animals. So there's a lot of limitations. And moving away from what the has been used for the years is hard. But I think creating awareness, as you said, is not a great, it doesn't tell us much, but with what is telling us, how can we use it and consider the limitations for sure. I think that's the first step for the industry to use them. Uh, for the, do you have anything else to add for the disability case or? No, I, I, I guess maybe the, the only thing to maybe, to maybe think about there too is if we are giving, um, you know, when companies look at total uh, tract digestibility, I think it's really important to know that you know maybe your protein number gives you a little bit of a better indication but the amino acid digestibility yeah, total exactly. tract are, are 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 not valuable um really uh so so protein better apparent uh total tract um but but don't but don't look at those amino acid digestibilities because they won't tell you much yeah well, maybe over the years we have so much data on a parental track, we can maybe do some wet muscle or models too. When you get more data, we customize for external and try to understand it better. Maybe. Wow. I mean, we could we could largely say that we could we probably have the data that we can start to model some of that because the black box in there too is really understanding how changes in the hindgut microbiome affect both the use of nitrogenous compounds, but also the production of nitrogenous compounds as free amino acids and nitrogen compounds, but then also bacterial protein, right? Yep. So we have so much more to learn and that hindgut isn't inert when it comes to protein either, right? We kind of put those blinders on a little bit, but as an example, you know, in the in the side the, the side kind of side caveat here is is that anything that does flow into the colon is either is going to be utilized by bacteria in some ways to produce some beneficial compounds, but potentially to produce um, um, deleterious compounds too, such as putrefactive compounds from um, protein fermentation. So we have a lot more to learn and a lot more to understand about that symbiotic relationship that we have with those bacteria that are are in our gut. Yeah, I think they show as well. Many people think maybe for cancer, carnivore. So there is nothing going on in the large intestine, but there is. So you will need to keep that in mind. And it's important also to consider not only for pigs. And, yeah. But I think let's talk about bioavailability. And we talk a little bit of the nicotine amino acid oxidation with uh, our other host, Dennis Julian, the our first talk. And we talk about using the methodology to determine amino acid requirements. But as Kate mentioned, we can also use the same methodology to determine the bioavailability of amino acids. And that brings value because even when we apply those cystectomized rooster models or the iliocannulated pig, 
uh, there's some amino acids that are going to be modified chemically, but they're going to be absorbed and are going to be able to utilize for protein synthesis. So they're going to show up or uh, digestible or absorbed, but they're not going to be utilized. So that's when you talk about bioavailability, the amount of amino acids that's going to be absorbed and utilized for metabolic reactions. And the classic example is lysine. Uh, during processing, you may have may lack reaction. So the lysine uh, is the most common one attacked by the sugar compounds because it's two amino groups, so it's more, um, let's say, vulnerable. And that's my cat. I knew that would happen at some point. <laughs> Anyways, the lysine is more um, susceptible to those uh, um, uh, reactions because it has two amino groups and it's going to be absorbed but not utilized for protein synthesis. So we are going to, when you get the results for those uh, animal models, it's going to show up as um, disappearing from the uh, small intestine, but it's not going to be utilized. And when applying the amino acid oxidation technique, you are investigating how much of the amino acids being utilized for uh, protein synthesis. And the same way you're going to do, um, we're going to give a, a labeled amino acid, which is 13 c and you're going to measure its oxidation. Um, by measuring the flux of uh, 13 CO2 breath of the animals. So basically basically measuring the end product of uh, the oxidation of the amino acid, which means this, its utilization by the animal. And to use the IO technique to measure bioavailability, it would basically going to use a basal diet that we know our limited amino acid is 100% bioavailable. So let's say we want to measure the bioavailability of uh, poultry meal uh, we first need to know, compared to a basal diet, that we know the availability of the limited amino acid. And I'm saying the limited amino acid because we can only measure the bioavailability of one amino acid at a time, the limited amino acid. So that's one disadvantage of the IAO. We only get the bioavailability of one amino acid. And then we kind of assume that all the other ones are going to have similar bioavailability, but may not be true. But we're going to compare, let's say, the limited amino acid on poultry meal is methionine. So we're going to compare to a basal diet that you're going to provide this amino acid or methionine as a synthetic source that we know is 100% bioavailable. Then I want to feed uh, three levels, at least three levels of that diet um, with the methionine concentration below the requirements. So maybe 60% of the methionine requirements, 70 and 80, a little, a little bit higher, but I'm just making up some numbers here. And then feeding a diet with methionine supplied only from our test ingredient, which is in this case, let's say it's poultry, uh, poultry meal. So I want to have 6% of the methionine coming from poultry meal, um, 70%, 80%. And then I want to compare this low uh, after the regression against the basal diet. And basically the same principle, the higher, if you increase the requirement, you're going to decrease the oxidation because more of the marker and consequently of the limited amino acids going to protein synthesis. And then we compare the slope of the basal diet compared to the um, our test ingredient. And usually the lower the bioavailability, you're gonna see uh, like this slope's gonna be lower or like increase, gonna more be my straight line and more close to 100% bioavailable, very close to our basal diet. So that's a way to measure bioavailability. I have an idea about how much of those amino acids are being utilized by the animal. And I think that's very important for lysine, uh, as I mentioned, because we do a lot of processing techniques that destroy or make lysine unavailable. But there are also the amino acids that we don't look much, such as methionine. There's a lot of oxidation of methionine during processing that um, we don't take into consideration. It's also hard to measure. But 
that's one methodology to, to that we can measure bioavailability. Yeah, so maybe revisiting to looking at this, we're talking about measuring bioavailability in the animal um, of an ingredient or, or a complete food, but um, is there anything, uh, do you want to expand a little bit on things that you can measure in the food that might give you an indication of the bioavailability of, I, I think that lysine is probably being examined the most? Yeah, usually the people, well, people do the most is the reactive, reactive lysine. And if it's reacting, it's because it's bioavailable. So the ratio about uh, lysine to rea- reactive lysine, the opposite is what people use the most as a kind of understand the heat damage, how much the heat damage is destroying those amino acids. So that's a great indication and I think it's a great start as well. And it's not uh, very expensive, it's much cheaper than doing an indicator amino acid oxidation study, for sure. And two, I think this is an important um, caveat because we have really differently processed foods on the market. Um, And yet we draw people's attention to the ingredient deck. Um, So when you look at something um, like chicken, is it just a standard bioavailability? Uh, you know, do you want do you want to kind of to to help the listeners understand how you can really bugger up an ingredient with different processing? Yeah, and I think when you think about processing, we start with the processing that we apply in the raw material. So, raw material quality is the first step to ensure final quality of our product. And when we have, for example, poultry byproduct meal, although we have one definition established by AFPU. There are different ways to produce the poultry byproduct meal. So how much heat are we going to use to produce? And the byproduct are basically trying to create a concentrate source of protein. So we're going to remove the fat, remove the moisture as much as we can. And to do that process, we apply heat. Uh, and heat, although is our best friend to kill pathogens, is our enemy for nutrients. So something can be good and bad at the same time as everything in life, and heat's the same. Uh, is great uh, to you know, to provide food safety. But for a nutrient perspective, you're going to decrease the bioavailability of many amino acids. So I think the first time we need to understand the quality of our raw material. So when you get a poultry meal, not all poultry meals going to be the same. Uh, there will be a huge variability between uh, where you source this protein meal and we see batches as well. So we need to make sure that we are sourcing for a specific um, uh, manufacturer and they have a low variability in between samples. And many companies, when they get ingredients, they have a lab analysis that they do those analysis, but also maybe you should also measuring not only amino acid concentration in those ingredients, but also the ratio of reactive lysine to lysine, for example, to give us a better indication about how aggressive is the rendering process that they're applying. And that's going to be a very important consideration. When we move to the mechanically separated meat, which is just show up as, for example, chicken or beef uh, in our package, when you talk about extrusion or even canning, those are going to be raw and they're going to be included in the process as raw meat. So those are going to be, in theory, high protein quality. But at the same time, they're very, they're high in fat. They're better source of fat and moisture than protein. So they're not concentrated. So if you consider the amount of protein for protein quality, that's also going to have decrease the protein quality a little bit because not a good source of protein anyways. So people have to understand those concepts as well. But yeah, I think the first thing, thing that we think about processing is processing applied to the raw material. We're going to have some 
uh, losses of amino acids. And it's all about heat, heat exposure. So the temperature and the degree. So the degree of heat exposure, like the temperature and the amount of heat exposure. So for how long are we applying the heat? So those are the two major factors that we need to consider. And that applies for extrusion and also for canning. So for extrusion, many, think, many people think that we're going to have a lot of amino acid losses during the extrusion process, but actually those occur also during drying. So during drying is where you're going to see the most loss of vitamins and also the, the malar direction occurring. So we need to give um, better attention to our drying process. And we focus again on food safety. So remove all the moisture to keep the product safe and uh, don't have any well, growth pathogens, pathogens of yeah, growing mold and so on. Um, but also the more heat to apply, the more amino acids are being lost as well. So we need to consider that. And for canning, the commercial sterilization process that currently utilize the pathway industry, you have a F value much higher than is necessary. So we're over-processing everything. So how can we kind of optimize these conditions to make sure we're producing a safe product, but also we are not destroying as many as much as many amino acids or nutrients uh, during this process. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think too um, that, you know, we can't forget that uh, uh, probably one of the biggest reasons that we cook a food after um, the stability and the microbial um, safety aspect is um, we need to cook the starch. Dogs and cats don't handle uncooked starch very well. Um, and and so we also look at aspects of of, um, uh, of starch cook and we know that the the better that you cook the starch, the the more the more digestible it is. So this this really this conversation just really, really emphasizes that when we're thinking about amino acid and protein analyticals, um, and we're thinking about the digestibility and bioavailability of the amino acids that companies really need to understand their ingredients and at minimum how those ingredients, um, what the level of digestibility are. And it's really important to also do if you're considering a process change in uh, for your pet foods. So if you're thinking about, like you said, changing the the temperature that you um, that you extrude at or the duration of, of the extrusion process. So just to really implore those companies uh, that are thinking about these these stages to remember you you should always if you're going to change part of your process, you should come back to make sure that you haven't altered any of your nutrient dynamics for that for that formulation. And I don't know if people always think about that. So I just wanted to emphasize that as well. So um, kind of moving along, really, the the third component um, of protein quality, and and we're, we're not going to talk about this to a super great extent, um, but is the um, the amino acid requirements. And, and for anybody who's listening that hasn't listened to either um, when I was the guest or when Julia was the guest um, with uh, Dr. Dennis Jewell, is we both talked about um the lack of information that we have on on amino acid requirements in dogs and cats. There's very little in in dogs, and there's even less in in cats. And and this isn't about deficiency in surfeit. It's about the empirical measurement of an amino acid requirement 
Um, we've got some some ideas uh, about that, but we also have very little idea about how um, an immune challenge might change an amino acid requirement. We know very little about how amino acid requirements might change going into the senior and the geriatric phases of animals, and and and. And I think what it's what's really important to maybe share um, broadly with the listener is that all proteins aren't all proteins. So you have really well balanced proteins. Um, we tend to think of um, milk based products and egg based products as those, um, but it, it it should look like the amino acid requirements of the animal. And so to really have a good understanding of that, we do need these measures. But what what really you know one of the things that that I wanted to talk about and 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 see Julia how how you felt exposed to this during during grad school as well is is that there's nothing that I loathe more than um, the regulatory second part of the claim of complete and balanced. There's so little in the regulations that have to do with balance. Um, and so companies really need to look at where their amino acids are and, and how much greater, because we do, first of all, believe, I think from both of our podcasts, it was clear that, um, we both firmly believe that uh, the amino acid requirements are underestimated right now and, and dogs and cats might, might likely need more, but the amino acid balance. So the ratio of all the indispensable, amino acids, the ratio of the indispensable amino acids to the total dispensable amino acids. We know very little about this in the dog and cat. Um, and those amino acids might, like the pattern of those amino acids may be different for different physiological stages and, and life stages. So um, that's going to be really, really important as we kind of look to what our guidance is in terms of the amino acid targets. But when you think about ideal ideal proteins, Julia, what what guidance um, would you give the industry about how to think about that in total when they're formulating uh, complete diets? Yeah, no, that's a I think it was a tri- tricky question as well. And just before we move to that, I think to people understand when you're saying empirical determination of amino acids is not only fitting a diet that is has center, like specific concentration of amino acids for two years, okay, they're healthy, so that's their requirement is providing graded levels of the amino acid until we find a break point or no changes in a biological response. So I think people have a hard time sometimes understanding that's empirical determination or the industry sometimes. Uh, those is all sitting and dying to make sure they're healthy. Probably, okay, they're healthy because they're oversupplying everything, but what is the ideal amino acid to support a specific biological response? Uh, and I think the ideal protein is probably not coming from one protein source unless you're eating a specific part of your muscle <laughs> because that's the ideal protein for each species. But I think balance is very important. Having different protein sources to provide those amino acids, the ideal balance of amino acids is the first step that we need to look into. I know specific diets or specific formulations you're going to see for only one protein source for specific reasons, but I think variety is very important to meet those different amino acid ratios and composition. I think we also have a lack of 
we are asking for the industry, okay, let's balance the amino acid profile. What is the ideal balance? We don't know exactly, as I said, we don't know much yet, or where can they find this information? They know for calcium phosphorus, for sure, but okay, how about amino acids? What is the ideal ratio? We may know for a little bit of tryptophan to large neutral amino acids based on the NRC ratios, but how about the other amino acids? What is the ideal ratio? Which one should not be much higher than the other? So I think we also... Um, need those amino acid requirement studies to derive that ideal balance and then go from there. Because I also sometimes ask myself, where is this information? So it's kind of hard to ask for results, but else we don't know the answer. So I think we need a lot of collaboration between academia and industry to get this data out and uh, provide better, better formulations for ideal or really balanced diets, as you mentioned, that we are still lacking yeah, so so maybe in and I haven't um, talked to you about this, so this will this will it's coming out of nowhere. Um, but now that now that you're on the other other side and you're now responsible as a faculty member uh, for not only teaching but doing a certain amount of research, um, and Dennis and I talked a little bit during my podcast about. Uh, where we get money to do that and what kind of work that facilitates. But you're a brand new professor. You're you're out looking for those opportunities now. Um, and, you know, if, if you could tell the industry what would look like uh, a great way to advance our basic understanding of dog and cat physiology, what are your thoughts? I think the first step is actually going back, where can we do this research? Who are the people who are trained to do this research? And so far, if you think about amino acid requirements, uh, it's only a diverse wealth from our lab that has the capability of doing amino acid requirements in dogs and cats, specifically. Also, I think is as we're doing training more people to do the same thing as the first step, having trained personnel and getting these people to academia or to the industry and getting industry that support this kind of research. Can we buy this equipment? Can we uh, run those trials? And can we precisely provide those estimates? So I think the first step is what you're doing, training people. I think that's the first and very important step. And getting the industry to understand that those trials are expensive. They are not easy. They require a lot of effort and teamwork, but they are worth it. And when you think about formulated diets, think about health and longevity and well-being. We need to think about requirements. It's so basic, but we don't look at it. We are looking at the other side of the equation, health claims and all those different good health, all those, every kind of health. Well, how about the minimum amount of nutrients that they need? So I think it's very important to go back, take a step back, understand that. And unfortunately, in the US, we don't have much support from uh, government funding from pet food research. So we rely a lot on the industry to get this data going on. And so I hope that over the years, the industry can understand that to support the health and well-being claim that every pet parent wants to see, we need to understand amino acid requirements. So I hope that's something that created awareness over the years and make the industry kind of go back to support basic research, not only applied research with, I think the basic research is the fundamental or the base of applied research. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would, I would, um, I would love to, and I, I, I don't know how to go about it or, or, you know, maybe it's the pet food institute's responsibility to kind of go about it. I would love all the pet food companies, um, to target some things about metabolism that would benefit everyone knowing about. And so have strategic research questions and, and put money towards it. And maybe it's based on their, you know, net outside sales or something like that, that every year they have X amount that they give back uh, to research. I think um, I, I, I would love to see the pet food industry move something like that. So maybe, maybe I can, I, I can plug us getting a little bit more agnostic um, funding sources rather than really targeted requests, which I think a lot of us, a lot of us get in research. Um, sorry, go ahead. And, it, and the commodities associations, I feel like the farmers for specific grains, they do that. They have those checkoff associations. Yeah, everyone put money to, okay, let's advance research. So maybe in the pet food industry, it's, and they're competing as well, they're farmers, but they all want to, you know, get profit out of it. So maybe in the pet food industry, we should think, as I said, about something similar to everyone puts a little bit of money to answer questions that's going to benefit everyone. And at the end of the day, should be benefiting the animals. So if you have those claims to, if our company is who wants to provide about the best diet for the pets, we should think about more, collect, more as a collective, in a collective way rather than just profit. But I think we, we are moving towards that. Hopefully should. Yeah, I think I think so too. I think so too. I think in general that um, there is interest. Everything's moving. It is a consumer good. So there's you know there's good and bad about about them all. Um, so uh, so maybe maybe to um, wrap it up. Uh, previously, I know we've uh, I think Dennis um, asked me about uh, favorite favorite book. Um, but, uh, I, I thought that I would, uh, kind of switch it out at the end of the podcast and, and, um, ask you, cause I don't know this and I doubt you know mine either, but what's your favorite movie that revolves around an animal? Oh my God. That's gonna sound weird, but I don't watch much movies. <laughs> I don't even remember. Okay. What about TV show? I don't watch TV shows either. That's even weirder. Like this I don't is watch how that. you get so much done. You don't watch any TV. That's no, I like to watch cooking TV shows like MasterChef or any baking competition, which I don't like cooking either. So it doesn't even make sense. But uh, I like... I think then movie, one movie that I cried a lot was like the... Oh my God, what's the name? They have a Labrador. Marley? No. no. Oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you are talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now I'm blanking. Was it called Me and Marley? I think so, yeah. I think everyone who loves animals it was kind of like touched by that movie. And for me, it was like I was very touched as well. I, I, when I was a kid, I loved that baby. You know, the, because I love pigs as well. Oh, so, babe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was just like those. I don't know. I'm not a movie person, but I like anything that involves animals. Babes, How about babe? you? Yeah, I'm. I'm surprised you didn't. Uh, I think hands down, my most favorite um, companion. I'll use a companion animal character, uh, Puss in Boots, and and from from Shrek. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think he's 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 quite outstanding and and seriously seriously hilarious. The the TV show is also 
very hilarious and um, the spinoffs uh, where there's a, there's a spinoff with a bunch of kittens um, that are really rascally and and he has to like kind of mentor them is is <laughs> pretty hilarious. Um, oh, and it drive. Oh, you have to. It's 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 very 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 funny. So that'd be my that'd probably be my favorite movie slash um, uh, TV. Um, and uh, and then last but not least, I thought um, it would be interesting to have you tell me one thing I failed to tell you before you moved on to a faculty position that I should have while you were my student. <sighs> but I have this public course, courses in public. That's tricky. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I'm also new as well. Like I've been in this position for not a long time, so I'm still learning a lot. And I think nobody teaches you how to navigate through politics or how to. You only learn when you jump in. And I think there's different um, ways to navigate through different universities as well. Um, what I think you need, maybe I thought I was independent, but you need a much higher level of independence when you go to a faculty position. And yeah, I think that's something maybe you didn't advise me right away. Uh, but I, of course, have mentors, but you need a much higher level of independence. And maybe I'm moving straight from PhD to a faculty position, and then you have to make a switch in your head very quick as well and kind of have, have a level of maturity and, you know, very in a short time. So I think it's challenging, but also. Uh, I love research. I love teaching as well. And I think um, having this in mind always keeps me going. But I think whoever wants to go to academia after a PhD is challenging. So be very independent and try to be independent during your PhD as well because everyone tells you have to be independent. But it requires a very high level of independence because you are you have a boss, but you're really your own boss. So how are you going to not set up yourself for failure? I think that's the very most important thing. How are going to organize our schedule? Because nobody's going to be checking on you. So you, how can you deal with that? So I think that's the most important part. And we learn by doing, but you should be learning how to do this. And I think I did, but it requires a much higher level of self-discipline. Yeah. Well, to be fair, you were also an extremely independent PhD student. So um, I I didn't really target... um, yeah, you were very independent already. So how far can I take you? Um, and but you're right, uh, independence. And then I think um, maybe um, you know part of that is having a thick skin to be confident enough to be independent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to, I think, trust ourselves. I think we have all those imposter syndrome sometimes, and we need to trust ourselves and know your value. I think that's a very important part for young people when you go to the market. You're young and you're recent hire, but if you are there, it's because they're bringing value. So know your value and know your problems as well. I think that's very important regardless what kind of job you go to. Know your value and stay at it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Julia, um, uh, it was a pleasure to be your advisor, and it's most certainly a pleasure uh, to have this continuing academic relationship with you. And I'm so excited about co-hosting this with you. Um, and thanks very much for having this conversation with me today. 
Yeah, no, thank you, Ben. I'm very excited as well to keep talking to you. So you're not, you thought you were going to get rid of me probably after I graduated, but here I am, I guess. <laughs> no, you you warned me. You warned me about Brazilians. I think I know. Yeah, I also have one Brazilian. You're going to, you know, you open the door and now we're going to have a Brazilian master coming to your lab probably. So I hope they're, they're no, you're good. Well, yeah, it's going to be great to have you on the this podcast as well. It's going to be Apple has plans as well because I think that's going to be a very uh, nice way to talk with one transformation. Yeah, and I, I think this is probably a great way to end off is uh, for anybody that's attending the annual um, Society of Animal Science um, in Albuquerque this, uh, this month, uh, Julia will be speaking um, in both the companion animal um, and in in another uh, section that's simultaneous to the companion animal um, on amino acids and protein metabolism. So uh, please uh, go and support her there and uh, continue to learn more about amino acids and protein metabolism from her. So uh, with that, thanks very much. And uh, I'll see everybody shortly.